Okay. Uh, today is Monday, December 25th, 2023, and Yomo is celebrating today. He doesn't realize what's happened between Russia and the Ukraine. You don't know. Ukraine is trying to totally disconnect itself from Russia, and the R Russian Orthodox have accepted December 25th as their Xmas celebration, so to differentiate themselves from Russia, which celebrates it sometime in early January. All right. Uh, let's begin as we should begin. It's again, uh, we're just overwhelmed by uh, the Karbanot and uh, Charlie Hexter, Dr. Hexter is not here in person today. He's ex he'll be participating in the military funeral for Maisels who fell in battle yesterday. If you saw the picture, the young man or middle-aged person with a long beard and the price we pay is indescribable. More than that, I'm not the only one who uh, says what I hope is intelligent. Uh, Fagelin has left the uh, Liquid Party and he issued a statement there was no safe passage for children and babies when, we when America bombed Hiroshima. So I'm not the only one who's wearing a shirt that says, Remember Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Achenu Kobet Yisrael, Hanatunum Betsaro Beshivya Homdim, Bain Biyan, Bain Bi Yabasha, Uvein Baavir, Hamakom Yurachem Alain Yotzem, Mitzara Levrochame, Fela Liorim, Shibad Lagula, Hashto Bagalov, Isman Kariv, Vinoma Amen. And the quote from Moshe Feiglin, a former Chavik Nesset, his family, I taught a good deal of his family, he's from Australia originally, I believe I taught his wife as well. There was no humanitarian path for the babies of Hiroshima. I also want to ask, uh, answer questions. First of all, I think uh, I've gotten already some very nice comments on yesterday's Shia. And I'll come back to it next Sunday. Uh, we'll leave that aside now. But after class, Ephraim uh, asked me two questions, and I want to just answer very quickly. Uh, he showed me a drusha of uh, the Ridbaz in which he maledicts Jews in Chicago, not by name, but uh, what he's referring to is heartache in the rabbinate. And I can tell you the name of the person he talks about this rub, everyone thinks it's exotic, etc., etc., and in reality, he is far from it. I don't want to mention the name, because in Israel, at the Kotel, at my minion every Friday night, his, it was either a son or a grandson, I believe, uh, it could have even been a son, who was an old man already, he davened with us, and I saw a Yiddish Sadik. So, you know, Machlekes and the Rabnit was par for the course 120 years ago. But that's what it's referring to, is Akmas Nefesh. The other thing that Ephraim asked me, uh, it is Ephraim Lustig I'm talking about, who came to Kli years ago, who was here when he came in Aliyah, until he got married, he was a regular student in person. But now he has a lot of responsibility, children, etc. And uh, he asked me a, a drush uh, hundreds of years ago, comparing the international dateline to Yontav Shani. So I looked at the drusha. I think what the Dashan is trying to say is that just like 
international dateline, you lose a day, you gain a day, but it winds up that there's always a Shabbat for two days straight, 24 hours. Same thing with Yom Tov Sheni, to be sure that no matter where you are or how you are for two days straight, there's Kedushat Yom Is the drasha Aishkachalkin halachically? Absolutely not, but it's a drasha. Okay, I want to pause for a minute and go back in time. Uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik, the, the concept, the name, the man, is, becomes more popular as time moves on. Ultimately, the Rav, there won't be a yeshiva in the world, whether white or black or gray, that will not be using the Rishimot that uh, has been put out now and the Kavadalatiferet by Rabbi Reichman. I can also predict that within the next 50 years, due to a guy named Rakefet who started it, there are going to be many other Svarma of the Loves, uh, Lamda Nud, as I explained to you when I revealed the secrets after 44 years at the funeral of, when it all became public, at the funeral of my dear friend Irvin Shapiro, Zichrona Levracha. So I want to just, first of all, very fascinating. Uh, Rabbi Grinstein sent this to me. It doesn't it show up well, but I'll tell you what it is. And I actually took this picture. I didn't have the time to find it many years ago, uh, 25 years ago. Uh, you see, you talk about chesedim and mitnacht, uh, and we're going to talk about that later today, and we're going to be involved for a while with that topic dealing with Velashin and Reb Chaim. So you if you're familiar with the Rakefit's book on the Rav, or books, I think it's in the first volume, the Rav tells a story about Haslovich that the Alta Rebbe once davened there, and where the Rebbe stood, they put up a fence, no one is allowed to stand there. And that fence remained there till Hitler. If you go to Maimonides in Boston, you come into the shul, Maimonides, the Rebbe's creation, the Rebbetson's creation, and you see a shtender, and on the shtender is a beautiful cover, uh, I don't know what you would call it, a, uh, a material, material cover, a, a, a velvet cover, right? There's no better word than cover. Any, maybe you have a better word, a velvet, it's not a mantle, because it's, it's flat, and it reads... Rabbi J period, not Rabbi, Rav J period, B period, S period. And that's exactly where the Rav davened, where the Rav stood, where the Rav Siddur was, and it remains as if the Rav is going to come, any, come in any moment and take its place. So that shows you right away that Chassidus uh, and Mitnagdim somehow we've been cross-pollination. It's, uh, we're influenced one by the other. So, this came in. A Talmud sent me this. I would have liked more details on the safe. Evidently, a volume came out by Art Scroll on Rabbi Nutter Greenwald, right? You know what I'm talking about? From, what, what's the name? Greenblatt. Greenblatt, Greenblatt, right. Greenblatt. From Memphis, Tennessee. The He's the uncle of Rabbi Ephraim Greenblatt, the, the, the Rabbi Vata Ephraim, uh, the uncle 
outlived the nephew, but they must have just been a few years apart. I, 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 I met them over the years. I remember in Hanov, and, and if you know Rav Nata Greenblatt, if there were tzaddikim in the world, he's one of the Lamedvahs, plain and simple. So uh, here they, I'm quoting from this volume, again I can't see the page clearly, but what's amazing is that this is an art scroll volume, and uh, they, he, Reb Nutta talks about Reb David Leibovitch, uh, Yehuda, Reb David Leibovitch mean anything to you? Uh, you have to go back in time. A guy named Larakefitz spent many hours on Yeshiva Teira Vadas. When you'll hear those lectures, you'll know who Reb David Leibovitch was. Uh, he left later. There was Machlokes and Torah after why, and and he founded Chafetz Chaim. You've been to Queens, you've seen Yeshiva Chafetz Chaim. The founder is Reb David Leibovitch. His son was Rosh Yeshiva many decades, Reb Hanich, Hanich Leibovitch, if you recognize the name. So, uh, Reb David Leibovitch referred to Rabbi Yosha Be'er as a different, this is a quote, as a different mitziyot than a Talmud Chacham. And he asked Reb David, what does that mean? Not they asked him. And uh, Rabbi Leibovitch explained, that there are many Golanim in the world, there are many Talmidei Chachamim, but the Rav was one of a kind. It's not just a Golan, not just a Talmud Chacham, but someone <coughs> beyond our comprehension. His Godlet, his Ibedigebenkeit to Torah, and Reb Nutta describes, this is when, coming back to my Sheyurim, Abe, I don't know if you heard them, but I spoke, you know, on the attempt to establish a branch of Yeshiva Sibbutz in Boston. Remember, 1939, 1940, I published in Revel, I published the whole arrangement there, and uh, later when the Rev went to New York to take his father's place, so Reb Michal Feinstein, the Rev's cousin, uh, and Reb Meishir's, uh, I, I believe it was a nephew, a cousin, and Reb Michal took, the, took over the kollel. So Reb Nutta, Reb Nutta comes to the kollel, and there were a lot, the Scheinberg brothers were there, a lot of people later, the Chait, the Chafetz Chaim crowd, and Europeans who had just come to America, and, and Reb Nutta describes, he went into the room, it was on the Rub's house, the kollel, went into the room where he learned there was a picture of the Zeder, Rab Chaim, on the wall, and uh, he describes how Rab Yosheber pulled out a small Rambam and started to learn Hilchat Rosh Hashanah. And he said the Shia went on until the morning. He said it was mamish like in the Seder, he, when the Talmidim say to the Rebbe, some of you may have heard I said a lot of Torah on this part of the Haggadah, and, uh, but it's not for now. I, if, if you recall, I gave a Hasidic approach, a literature approach, etc. But he said, Mamash, the Rav, and I heard this from other Talmidim who studied with the Rav in Boston during that period, there was no concept of a clock. 
they had to remind the Rav Rebbe, it's light outside. It's time to daven shachris. He man shel shachret. He began the shir 11 p.m. on Matzai Shabbos and continued into Sunday morning. Rav Nutter once told a group of Bachurim in, that in Rav Yashabes Yeshiva in Boston there was no set time for davening. We learned until we collapsed. We then davened and continued learning. And uh, it's beautiful description. And um, I am very happy uh, that uh, Artscroll published it and didn't edit it out. But uh, this was Reb Nutten Greenblatt, and this was the rug at that moment in time in his youth in Boston. I want to show you something else of interest, then you'll understand why I'm talking about the rub. I want to do something that I consider very important and very basic. Um, nowadays, uh, everything is put up for auction. So, uh, all right, you'll find the letter, I don't know, uh, you got a letter from your Rebbe in America, you'll put it up for auction. Uh, how much is it worth? $10, $50? They just put up for auction. Here, I, I, I don't have to, I'll tell you whose handwriting is, I don't have to have anyone tell me because I recognize it immediately. This is Reb Meisha Soloveitchik. This is the Rub's father. And this is a letter written 1932, right before the Rub's arrival in America. It's written to Hagon. It's written to Rablaza Silva of Cincinnati. Kenny, about Rablaza Silva, I have to tell you, uh, you don't start to understand who the man was. Uh, Rablaza Silva was arrived in America in Ilui, but not a gone yet. And he became Rav in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 1907. A guy named Rakefet wrote a volume on him, which unfortunately for Rakefet is, of everything he's written, it's the most widely circulated and praised volume. Uh, it's even in the Haredi world, as you know. Uh, okay, Baruch Hashem. He shouldn't be upset, because it's an achievement to have the Novominska and the Rav praise the same volume. And uh, he's writing to this letter is historic because it proves everything I wrote was correct. He's writing to Avlesa Silva. I'm reading the letter quickly. I don't want to read it word by word. It'll take too long. The, and the handwriting is not the easiest. The Soloveitchiks were not famous for the clarity of their handwriting. And uh, he writes to Avlesa Remember the story. Chicago invited the Rav to become Rosh Yeshiva. That way the Rav could get a non-quota visa to America. Once he left, they sent a telegram to Rav Meisha. The Rav is on the way to America. Sent a telegram to Rav Meisha. It's 32. Depression. Vic, we don't have the money to pay him. And Jacob, Jacob Horn, right? I got it right. Yeah. I'm blowing the horn correctly. And uh, we don't have the money to pay him. 
find a job for him on the eastern seaboard, a rabbinate. And Reb Meish is writing that we've made inquiries in Boston where there was a rabbinate open, but nothing is final yet. That's what he's writing for a place of silver. It's up for auction. I think the starting price began with, I think I saw $600 here. All right, I don't, I, I don't want to waste time looking for it, but if you go online... You'll see it up for auction, and you can... Who had it? Excuse me? Who had it all these years? Uh, uh, so you're asking a good question. I happen to know, but it's not for now. There was a problem with the family, a whole... Great people came to my house to ask my advice, and I told them, don't go to Dintora, work out an amicable s- solution, because the minute a family goes to Dintora, it becomes public. And it's not nice when Gedoli Israel fight over money. You follow? And Baruch Hashem, the family listened to me. But I, you should know that I saw something there. Uh, Rebleza Silva's grandson-in-law is the Svadik Rav of Batyam. He taught here in BMT in 1972, 73, 74. Uh, David Kohen, David Chai Kohen, a year at Sadek, a London, Mekas, a Rav, a paratrooper. Uh, I don't know if his origins, I think it was Moroccan, not Taimani. He looked more Moroccan than Yemenite. And he married the very beautiful ones. The first wedding I attended in Israel, uh, 69, and it was an aide on the wedding. And Rev Tzvi Yehud, the cook, whispered behind my back, Asking about me, a guy without a beard? Finally, one guy without a beard, 1969. So, uh, Rabdavid Haikohen came to my house, and his driver comes in with Rabdavid and his wife, and I wanted to meet you in my house, come sit at the table. have a drink, have some cake. The driver, no, no, he sat in the living room. We were in the peanut ochel. And if Reb David said one syllable to him, he was shaking. I never saw such covered in my... His father haven't lost it. We lost it. We lost it. The Ashkenazim, the, in, the inherent covered hatera, we don't have it. Take a look at Ludda Airport when it's back to normal and someone's carrying a safer Torah through. You'll see every Sfadi cover his head, put a handkerchief on, run and kiss the Torah. The Ashkenazim, some do, some look on, quaint ceremony, don't have to go further. Halavai Kenny, we should be Zoycha in outreach to bring everyone back. La'avat HaTorah. I'll never forget how we sat there and trembled, trembled. Okay. Now, among the books, I just got a gift that came out this past year, two volumes. The other volume is at home. I'm reading it. And I, I want to tell you about these volumes. And then I want to make my contribution to scholarship for future generations. These volumes are fabulous. This is the first one. It's uh, OU Press and Ktav, and um, it's 
all the Rav's drusha that he gave on Zionism and Israel, word by word, we never had these drusha before, all in Yiddish. And here I have to thank Professor David Fishman, did a fabulous job of putting together drushes, vegan shiva, sinyanim, kimbyam, ha'uma, and Salavechik spelt in the Yiddish fashion. And he put everything together here. By the way, his son was a very dear student of mine in this very room, sat right over here. If you remember Nathaniel Fishman, who lives in Israel, that's Professor David Fishman's son. I hope he's well and all is well with him, because I no longer daven in the Shtiblach. My children, grandchildren are all married, so I daven close to the home. He lives in Ramad. He's married? No, still not married. All right, I, I don't want you and him to talk to each other. I usher it, and you're not going to listen to me because you're not like the driver for Reb David Chai Cohen. Uh, 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 excuse me? Is the book in Yiddish? Entirely in Yiddish. Now, the other volume that came out is the English translation by Zaid Lafella, also a beautiful volume. That's what I have at home because I'm going through the Drushet in English. I can read Yiddish, but it takes me ten times as long as to read English or to read Hebrew. So I'm going through it in English. But why am I telling you all this? First of all, it's wonderful volume. Secondly, the introduction here in this volume by Professor Fishman is also in English. Don't go out, Yomo. This is very important because I'm going to chop your head off in a minute. Um, it's very, very important. Now, you'll understand why. So he's dealing with this tremendous question of how the Rav became a Mizrahiite. A guy named Rakefet at the request of the OU some 20-25 years ago in this very room recorded nine hours, six shiurim. No one was allowed to speak during the shir. Only when I finished, then we opened it. For obvious reasons. These tapes were later sold by the OU in a beautiful box. I think I have one of them in, in my office. And it was the biggest bestseller they ever had of any tapes they ever published. Those six shiurim, nine hours, are all on YU Torah. Can he go and find them? Maybe you'll get a multi-billionaire to set up five students to index everything on the shayurim, and then you'll know right away, oh, you shayurim, the rub and religious Zionism. Now, yes, this is an interesting question. And now I'm quoting from uh, his introduction. Rabbi Salavechik's formal association with Misrahi began in June 1940 when he was listed as a member of the large executive committee. In that same year, he also joined Misrahi's committee to strengthen Torah and Judaism. He signed public appeals, etc. But at the very same time, Rabbi Salavechik also joined the American branch of Agudat Yisrael and was selected as chairman of its central executive committee. It is, I'm quoting now, it is remarkable and indeed astonishing that Rav Salavechik belonged to Mizrahi and Agudit Yisrael at the same time. 
Regardless of how one may explain this fact, Rabbi Soloveitchik's affiliation with the Aguda was short-lived, the year or two, whereas his bond with Mizrahi lasted until the end of his life. Okay. Morty, good question. Ask me the question. Mizrahi Aguda. All right. Let me give you the answer, which is absolutely true. Uh, 100%. I'm not guessing now. I'm living. What you have to understand is that in the 1920s, the 1930s, all there was in America was Mizrahi. There was one Agudist in all of America. No, you've heard my shirm over the years. Rabbi Grzynski, Rabbi Moises cousin, who was in Omaha, Nebraska. The Rab- we spoke about him in great detail years ago. Yeah, he was in Omaha, Nebraska, came to America. It's the Rav Hamakshia, big slaughterhouses there. And I knew people who yet knew Rav Kuzhensky from, from uh, 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 Omaha. When he retired, he moved to Brooklyn. I heard Edith Nehmanach, he knew every Tosfat and Shas by heart. All right, so Chaim Moises, I think, was the first cousin even. Stony Agudis, because of Rab Chaim his cousin, Europe, Agudich Israel, you've heard my Sheyorim, or Etzegadolei HaTorah. Rab Silva was a world famous figure by the 1930s. He was the last American rabbi to be world famous. Today, anyone in America, he doesn't exist if he's not a Rosh Yeshiva. When they spoke about the demonstration, they didn't ask rabbis, they asked Russia Yeshiva. It's a different world then. This is so important not to be anachronistic. Don't judge the 30s by 2024. So, Rebleza, there's now the third Knesiyah Gedolava, Good at Yisrael, remember 1923, 1929, 1937. So he goes to Europe, goes to his Rebbe, Rebbe Chaim Oisa. Rebbe Chaim Oisa says to him, Leisa, I believe, let me translate it, I believe, I'm thinking, it's time to establish a good at Yisrael in America. Rebbe Leisa went back, his Rebbe told him, he establishes. No, let's talk about the Rav. I didn't really, I told you, I got a compliment that ruined my life. Uh, my, uh, the Rav's Gaboyim, when the Sulbira came out, I had them deliver a copy to the Rav. The Rav told his Gaboyim, Rabbi Ratkov, he's unbelievable, fabulous, what a work. He's my historian. Ruined my life. Uh, you, the asking why, I'm always introduced, the great historian, I'm always a boor, and then you're a great historian. Did you ever call me doctor? No one even knows I have a doctorate. I never, I love him, I love that. But the rough said, I'm finished. That's it. I'm always the writer. Oh, but in Jewish history, you're going second power. All right, what can I do? 
when I did my research on the Rav for my the biography in the two volumes, I I learned what a compliment I got from the Rav. He worshipped the ground that Rablazer walked on. Morty, when he came, when the Rav came to America, this was his role model. I, I heard this from the family as well. He had one dream in the 1930s. To be like Rablazer Silver. Rablazer was a gone and a self-made gone. Now see, no one realizes that. He's the first gone that was made in America. Everyone else came to America. The Rav came alumned in Mufak. Rabbi Aaron Kutler came, Kletzker Shiva. Give me any name. Rabbi Yehuda laid for you. Holyoke came, Agon Adir, Talmud Mufak, Rabbi Chaim Briska. Rabbi Lazer came a kid. He was running away from you. Do you remember my lectures or not? Vic, why was he running away? Tell the class. He married... He married the librarian, a love affair. Could you imagine this Prashu library? Jacob, you don't know what I'm talking about. Were you ever in Vilna, Jacob? 1900? Let's, let's go to Vilna. Beautiful lady was working behind the counter. He married her. Was a Ravsa Tachta Hat Chasno on a Shivach Habusha Chliba Chepper. Mark. Believe me, I'm going to pay YU for the privilege of teaching. I never had, it keeps me alive, keeps me alive, and I'm able to survive all the bad news. At least this is eternal. So you see, the Rav, if he gave me a compliment that I described Reblazer correctly, who I didn't even know, wow. So you see, when Reblazer organized it, he said, Beryl, come in with me, come in with me. The Rav joined to it. Now, what you have to understand is a good Mizrahi in America, it wasn't like today. There were no Mizrahistim, but in 37, there were no Agudistim, I should say. But in 37, the people running away from Hitler started to come in. Chassidish Yidin, Litvish and they weren't going to assimilate so quickly. And they organized that good, the Reb Lezer. But it wasn't black and white. Yomo, prove to me I'm right. Do you know the Silver Era by heart? Not yet. Not yet. You better brush up on it. In the Silver Era, I quote Reb Lezer. Reb Lezer says, quote, a good is my oldest sister, my elder Schwester, and Kenny Mizrahi is my youngest, my youngest Schwester, my youngest daughter. See, it wasn't that split. No one would dream that out of a good would come a pronouncement that the rally in Washington is chasatreif. It was beyond comprehension. Yehuda Dov proved me right. Very simple. Familiar with the Silver Era? What happens to Rablazer after World War II? As Aguda starts to move right, 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 Rablazer Silver becomes persona non grata. They can't go publicly against him, but he's too much good. 
to, he was the founder, the first president, but he's being pushed aside gradually. It's not us. So you see, when the Rav joined Aguda, it wasn't the Aguda of Chazatreif. It was, they figured in America, all right, another organization. It'll Talmud Torah. You got to read what the Rav says here. Talmud Torah. It'll help. It'll spread. And that's why the Rav became an Agudist in America. And Europe, he never affiliated with anyone. But in America, Rabbi. But then, as the war developed, and all that, I can't repeat everything I spoke about, and the march on Washington, and Rabbi Kotler didn't participate, and, and the little influence we had, how many more lives could have been saved had we been activists, the Rav gradually moved totally away from Agudah and into the Mizrahi camp. And he was in Agudah officially, from 37 on, not just two years. 41, I told you the story. They organized Moetzik Gedolei HaTorah in America, and the Rub was a member of the first Moetzik Gedolei HaTorah, 1941. Now, I, I want, and, and the rest you can fill in listening to the nine hours, the tapes, how the Rub becomes a Mizrahiite. But here I want to caution Yomo. Everyone else, I want you to get these volumes and study them. If you don't read Yiddish, get the English one, not Yomo. You know why Yomo? Because it's unedited. What the Rub says about Aguru Yisrael, you would go berserk, okay? Now, how come he's allowed to say as Talmudim can't say? I didn't say that either. Okay, whatever you say. Whatever you say, not, uh, the rub is talking in the 1940s World War II, so your answer is totally negated. Okay, Abkhan, it doesn't matter. Yomo, read it in dignity and enjoy. But they apologize in the introduction that it's not edited, and they, quote, they don't want to edit the rub, you understand? And they quote him verbatim. And oh boy, is he shocked. He became a Mizrahiite. Is he shocked? Did he foresee the future? He already saw the Chazatreif when few people understood what was happening in America. Okay, but what volumes? Also, I want to say, I want to thank Professor Fishman. He corrects me, uh, it's not just me, it's others, and he's absolutely right. He uncovered material meaning. Everyone wrote originally that Rabbi Halavechik was honorary president of the Mizrahi from 1949 on. People asked me this. I said, look, I, I followed, I showed them sources written in the 60s that all give that date, 49 on. Uh, it turns, or 46 on, i got to go back to my own writings and check. It turns out that he was Yoshev Rosh of the Mizrahi. That was the official title, I think, from 43. Professor Fishman gives the sources. In 52, they turned the title into president. 
so that if I ever issue a, a revised edition of the Rav, they keep on printing it, but printing the same thing, because it costs money to do a new edition. If I ever enter a new edition, then I'll make a footnote and uh, explain that he was first Yoshev Rosh, which is the highest position, whatever it means. But Professor Fishman says, I don't know exactly how to translate it. What does it mean? But then he becomes the president officially in 52. Okay, with that being said, let me return. Yomo, you can go get breakfast. Let me return to uh, the Rub's forebears. I hope I've been helpful because uh, if you don't understand what the world was like in the 30s and the 40s, you really have a big question. How can one be a Mizrahi Aydan and a Gudist at the same time? In the reality today, that would be absolutely impossible. I can tell you that there's a very prominent Balabas in Baltimore has one dream to bring about a good relationship between Mizrahi and Aguda. And he actually has spoken to some of the so-called Gedolim on the Moetzet, and he said, why don't you invite Rav Heschel Shachter to speak? Why don't you invite Rav Mordechai Willick to speak? And he even throws in a third name that I shall not mention, initials AR, and believe me, Morty, you'll be dancing on the moon sooner than these names will be speaking at an Aguda convention. In Israel, we may achieve it. There's a lot happening on the borders. The Chadalim and Aguda, the broader ones, or more enlightened ones, use whatever term you want, the more integrated ones, it's not much difference between them. And uh, there may ultimately be a total union on the borders of Mizrahi and Agoda. Okay, now let's come back to Reb Chaim Velazhin, let's come back to Velazhin, let's come back to the world where we belong. And um, there's no question that Talmud Torah is crucially important to the Jews, to the Jewish existence. The volume by Mordechai Breuer is a fabulous volume. Uh, uh, were you able to get it? Did Charlie get it? Do you know, Morty? You don't know. Okay, it's a fabulous volume. And uh, we've always had yeshiva, we've always had learning. Now, what happened in modern times that Reb Chaim Velashin is considered the founder of the first yeshiva, they call Velashin the Imasha Kol HaYeshivas, the Muta from Ali Yeshivas, the mother of all yeshiva. What happened? What was going on? So I, I, this is a volume I mentioned before, and now I want to tell you, I'm quoting from this volume. Many volumes have been written in B'nai Brak and elsewhere. This volume, Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb, Normie Lamb, says this is the most honest volume, and I always felt that way, even before I heard this from Rabbi Lamb, who after all is the expert. He wrote his doctorate on it. And it's by Moshe Shmuel Shmukla, Shin Memvav Kuf Lamed Reish. He wrote two volumes. This volume is on Toldot Rabbeinu Chaim Evolution, and then he wrote another volume years later, came out, I believe his son published it in America, Reb Moshe Shmuel Vidoro. And he had a real keen, honest, academic sense of history. 
Now, I'm quoting from his volume of Reb Chaim. I'm quoting from Perik Shach. Why, why suddenly did we need a Voloshin Yeshiva? Okay, first of all, many historians say, and there has to be truth to this, for hundreds of years, Jews were pious. It doesn't mean they didn't sin. If you open response to literature, you will find in the 1500s, the 1600s, the 1700s, Jews sin. You all know the Nodabi Huda that I've quoted so many times that still shocks me, where a big Talmud Chacham has an ongoing affair with his mother-in-law. It's hard for me even to verbalize this, but the Nodabi Huda has to deal with it. So Jews sinned, but they did not change Judaism. See, this is the big difference between post pre, let me put it this way, pre-modern civilization. When the Enlightenment comes in and the Jew finally comes out of the ghetto and we're talking in Germany, this begins in 1762, Mendelssohn is honored and permitted to live outside the ghetto, Moses Mendelssohn, Moshe Mendelssohn. Well, he goes out, 10 others follow, 20 others Hundreds, thousands, by 1800, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Jews are living outside the ghetto. And once you live outside the ghetto, you're influenced by the world around you, you're even blinded. Can you remember my lectures in BMT? You're blinded, you're blinded. Remember I told you, I think I said it last week too, it's like coming out of a cave. The cave is dark and suddenly there's light and your eyes have to adjust. So the Haskalah, for the first time, the Enlightenment gave birth in Germany, intermarriage, assimilation, reform Judaism, later what we would call today conservative Judaism, the historical school, and for the first time it's not that Jews are sinners, but that Jews are changing the concept of sin. And, and, and this is going on. Germany, parts of Hungary, slowly but surely, the challenge is overwhelming. In every area, the reformers, the assimilationists have a majority. Well, you'll say Eastern Europe is far away from Germany. But by 1800 the winds of change are affecting Eastern Europe as well. And this may be a very basic reason that Reb Chaim Volozhin realized winds have changed, we can't go on with what we had until now. Now, what did they have until then? It was haphazard, it was desolatory. And what does this mean? Every kid learned Torah the local rabbi, part of his responsibilities, those of you listening who are in the rabbinate, I, my wife was speaking with her sister yesterday. Her sister lives in Hillcrest in Queens. A whole family. And there's a new rabbi. And the rabbi's responsibility, among other things, he calls uh, the family 
you need a hearing aid, go to the doctor, he encourages, do this, do that, be a rabbi, communal rabbi. You have responsibilities today that have nothing to do with the rabbinate. It has to do with social work, with psychology. And you all know rabbinical schools like YU have so many auxiliary courses preparing the rabbi for what the reality is. In 200, 300 years ago, the rabbi's main job was to paskin shilas and to teach. And kids would gather around him. So in every community, you had 10, 20 (coughs) kids gathering around the rabbi. When a kid turned 13, 14, he went to work. A kid who was really brilliant, he married a wealthy girl. The father-in-law agreed to support him. And he sat and steigert and teira and became a big rav, a big common chacham. All right, this is beautiful, but it's haphazard. It's desolatory. It's hit and or miss. It's not organized. And could be, this is what Reb Chaim sensed, that as we move into the big world, and with all the challenges that we face, we have to be organized. Now, what's amazing in this book by Schmuckler on page 46, uh, by the way, I knew Schmuckler's, uh, unfortunately they're not alive, I would ask them today, are you related to this Schmuckler? I knew Schmucklers from Philadelphia, there was a big Schmuckler family, and the part of them became B'nai Kivaniks, Balei Tshuva, came in Aliyah, made good contributions here. But all right, that's years ago. So, uh, beginning on page 46, he quotes a letter from a Talmud Muvhak of Reb Chaim and, and this Talmud writes what it was like when Reb Chaim began the yeshiva. And he says, no one was learning. It wasn't serious. It wasn't real. And Rabbi Chaim's greatness that he gathered students around him, top Rebbeim, and the learning was serious. And he describes when Rabbi Chaim began the yeshiva, and this I heard from the Rab so many years later, Reb Chaim began the yeshiva, there were no gemaras, no shasim, no one owned an entire shas. They had a hunt for gemaras. Finally, some wealthy man invested money and they printed many shasim. Most of them went to Belushim. But you can imagine what it was like, just think for a moment, you don't have you don't have shasim. I mean, today it's unbelievable. You don't need any from If we could only solve the Shabbos problem, we wouldn't need one safer in our possession. It's all online. But this is 200 plus years ago. All right, not only that, this person describes that because of Elushin, he says, because of my Rebbe, Torah spread all over. And he describes in Minsk that one of the Volashina students, Reb Mordechai Minsk, by the way, people were called by the city they came from. 
they were not called by their last names. This went on until World War II. When you talk about the Mira who came to America, they were known by the city they were born in. Uh, some of them didn't have last names at all. When they took last names, they took the Vishaka, the name of the city, where they were born, where they came from. So he says there was Rev Mordechai Minsk who went back to Minsk, and he was a big Talmud Chacham, a Talmud Mufak of Reb Chaim Velashen, and he started teaching the teenagers. And he picked up two teenage kids of a very wealthy woman, Moratz Bluma. They weren't afraid to mention women's first names then. I don't have to elaborate. And they picked up the, the two boys of, of Mrs. Bluma, evidently a widow, and she was so impressed, she paid for all the expenses. Room, board, svarim, heat. So now in Minsk, and he traces when they began in Minsk, then someone wealthy in Vilna picked up and organized a cloise in Vilna that he will support, they should sit and learn. And he says, this is how Torah began in Lithuania, how Torah began in White Russia. And it all goes back to Reb Chaim. And this Talmud, when they opened up the cloise on a serious formal level in Minsk, he went to Reb Chaim Velashen. Um, you can look this up in Hilchat's Talmud Torah, Talmud, when he's allowed to organize his own yeshiva, or be Morahara. And he went to Reb Chaim and said, Rebbe, I'd like to open up a cloise we have in more formal. Mrs. Bloomer wants to support it. And Reb Chaim answered, you don't know how much joy I have to hear this. He said, from my yeshiva in Volushan, I have heartache. I have to raise the funds. But what they're doing in Minsk, Adarabha, you don't, I don't have to worry about the funds. You don't have to worry. You have Mrs. Bloomer supporting it. Adarabha, the Adarabha. Okay. Now, as the income, this is a very important part of today's shir. So, this student writing who many years later we're quoting him, he raises the issue, why weren't there any yeshiva? Why did Reb Chaim have to be revolutionary? Why did he have to change the whole world? Why weren't there yeshiva before? And he gives two answers. The first answer is a different answer that, that may have practical implications. Until recent times, people were satisfied with a primitive life. Now, the standard of living has risen. And once you need more, you have to work. You have to do more than you did before. And there's no time. You're going to 16, 17, 18 years of age. Exempt yourself from the world and just sit and learn. And, and this is the exposure to the Western world. When we came in Aliyah, life was so much simpler here. And the people that we met complained to us, oh, you should have been here 20, 30 years ago. Who needs all these innovations? 
There were no freezers. He went to a supermarket. Today, Americans came in, Anglos came in, Canadians came in. We raised the standard of living here. Monkey sees, monkey does. Take a look, you're going to a supermarket today, but you got to make more of a living. And, and, and this comes back, Kenny, when I was raised, a woman should work? Unheard of. A woman's place, the home, the children. Unheard of. Today, my grandchildren, my granddaughters-in-law, my great-grandchildren, every girl is raised like a boy. Already in sixth, seventh grade, they start thinking about what they're going to do in life. What you're going to do in life? You're going to marry, you're going to have children, you're going to run a house? No. I go to my doctors. Half of them are my own students who I taught in Michlala, not in Griscolil. You follow me, Kenny? This is a powerful, it's part of life. We have, am I happy about it? I have to tell you no. My wife is less happy than I am. I'm married to a very conservative lady. Small c. Small c. I told you. When we came in Aliyah, I, met, I went to meet Rabbi Yitzchak Schmidman. Mark, you know who I'm talking about? This is the founder of the whole Schmidman family in America. Jacob, you know about the Schmidmans? Why you and, and the rabbinate? And, oh my gosh. And Rabbi Schmidman says to me, here, I'm, 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 I came in Aliyah. I'm a Rav. I'm a Rosh Yeshiva. I was leaving YU, leaving Maplewood. He says, I am sorry your wife was born. I look at him. Kenny, that's the way he greeted me. But boy, was he right. He explained himself. He said, your mother-in-law was my greatest teacher in Yeshiva Reitzchayim. She taught because she had all the good Rebaran Shechter was her student. Reb Shlomo Freifeld was her student. All the good were her students. She got married. That's it. Never taught another day. A married woman should work? Disgrace, a bush of a mom, a disgrace for the husband. Ah, so you see, that's an interesting reason, and it's probably absolutely correct. And I, I mean, I, I give you another simple example. I, I'm reading already in the Alonim. So do you know the Alonim represent Mizrahi on one side, Chadalim on the other side, the whole center. And each alone is a little different. I'm reading. They're boasting about the women in the tanks. There was one tank crew. Women, they killed so many. Right now in the war. Can anyone say a bad word about women being frontline soldiers? Believe me, when I think about it, I don't sleep at night. The Radbaz, the Rambam, Okay, that's the first reason. And then the second reason. And gentlemen, here we are in World War, pre-World War One. And this is, the remaining pages, I would say, are a summary of the Nefesh HaChayim. Nefesh HaChayim is Rav Chaim Velozhin's classic work, 
And I trust all of you have held it in your hands, have studied part of it. I write about it, and I have a piece on Rebchaim Velashin and Rakafarar and Chelek Aleph. I quote from it. It's the battle with the Chassidim. And here, according to this letter that he's quoting and his analysis, the Frumkite overwhelmed basic learning. Meaning, and he says, you walk into Batei Medrash, all you find are Sifrei Musa. The Hasidic world, the stress on Kavanah, the stress on the heart, the emotion. Rachmana Libabai. The intellect, second best. At best, at worst, third or fourth best. And, and he describes right here in the letter that you could come into some places where Chassidish, younger light, young Hasidic people were learning. They daven chakras. They'd start at nine, finish at twelve. How much time is there left for learning? The Kavana, the Dvekot, you have the whole description here. This lesson, the respect for learning, the results of learning, the Gatleton learning. Learning is learning for the sake of learning. You have to be a Yerushamayim. Ain Amaritz. If you're an Amaritz, you can't be a Yerushamayim. Ain Bur Yerushay. It's a whole different concept and I can show you right down to our times I don't know today but when I came in Aliyah everyone was speaking about Amshanov Amshanov the Rebbe kept Shabbos Sunday morning Sunday afternoon he made Havdalah what is this Kavana theological concepts that's not halacha. Shabbat is over. Shachrit is here. How do you deal with Chabad? Shabbos morning, 10.30, the minion begins. Alright, they prepare themselves. Today, I don't know, prepare, go to mikvah, say to Hillam. I know I had a very good chaver. Uh, I write about this in Washington. He should live and be well. Rabbi Shmuel Pesach Bogomilski was rabbi on the tip of Newark and I was in Maplewood on the tip of Newark. And I come to his house one shot this morning. I had a, we worked together. We, we, we couple, read, read Washington. And, and I had to consult with him. I come to his house 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning. Minion is, I think, 9 o'clock in my shoe. Uh, 8.30? No, I think it was 9 when we began. Uh, of course, every other shul was 9 o'clock too. And uh, there he is. Beautiful blueberry pie. Cheesecake. Good cup of coffee. I looked at him. I was fainting. I'm fainting. How do you eat before davening? He said to me, Rabarin. I'll tell you the difference between your world and my world. In your world, you daven to eat. In my world, we eat to 
Davin. Quote, end quote. Jacob, you got it? All right. This is, you see already the difference, the two worlds. And he attributes the lack of learning not because of the Haskalah, but because the Hasidic world was conquering so much of Yiddishkeit and Jews. All right? It's an interesting point. We're going to come back to it. So those familiar with the Nefesh Harav, the Nefesh Harav, and I think it's Shah Dalib, so he says that they've gone so far that they don't even know what Allah is about. And Reb Chaim Veloshin says he came into the shul, to Davin Mincha, and he hears the people saying, see if the stars are out yet so we can Davin Mincha. Quote, end quote, from the Nefesh HaChayim. But then he says something else, and um, this is so true, unfortunately, so true today. He says, the lack of love for Torah, Torah learning, respect for scholars, is also a result of the big machloikis between the Hasidim and the Mitnagdim. And you see, when Torah Jews get along, it's attractive. When Torah Jews fight, well, the average person will say, what good is Torah? Take a look at the way they're fighting. Look at the Lush and Hara going back and forth. Look at this one says, Chazatreif, and another guy says, Polish What do we need that for? It's not attractive. And I have to admit, at times you have to open your mouth. There is machlekes. There's no two ways about it that what happens to reverberates, what happened in Mir, what happened in Lakewood, what happened in Moetzet Gedolei HaTorah, what happened at the Aguda Convention. It's a, it's a real challenge. On the other hand, halavai, we should be united. And when we talk about uniting, you look at that demonstration of 300,000 halavai, there would have been one million Jews there. But that's a reality of life. And he says, the creates enmity. It doesn't attract. There's truth to that. There's no two ways about it. And halavai, uh, we can overcome it. As I said, the Chabad and in Israel also they developed, I think NCSY now works this way, they're non-judgmental. And when you're non-judgmental, you can attract a lot more. But I personally find it easy to be non-judgmental when a Jew is raised totally assimilated, knows nothing about Yiddishkeit, comes from Russia, there just was an article in one of the Alonim. I remember in 1989, we were in Moscow, and the thaw was beginning. And the Shlomo Mikhail Center, the government, gave permission for the Jews to open it up in Moscow. That he, it, was a, it was a gesture to the Australian government. The Australian foreign minister and prime minister, they really fought for this. They were really Ohave Yisrael. 
I still remember the reception at the Australian Embassy when, when it opened, and I remember someone brought a good bottle of scotch, and the uh, Australian ambassador to Russia said, <laughs> we don't leave tonight until this bottle is finished. He held up this big bottle, and most of uh, who can drink? I don't drink. I, Shabbos, I make kiddish, okay. I should drink. It's good for your health, but I once tried. My Talmudian convinced me to take a shot. One glass of liquor every day, a little scotch. I take it, I got so tired, I had to go to sleep. I said, that's it, it's more important to be awake than the scotch. But I remember, and they opened up the Shlomo Michalov Center, and there they're serving food, treif meat and cheese on one plate. And you couldn't get upset, these are Russians, they didn't know better. This just happened now in a part of Russia. Someone from Israel was visiting there, to two rabbis, and they were invited, and Shabbos, I think it's in the Ukraine, and, and they couldn't believe it. They're serving meat and cheese on the same plate. Thank God the Jewish agency, which was sponsoring this whole event and this outreach, knew for the Rabbanim they had kosher food from Israel prepared for them. But you see, I can't get upset but when I hear the word chasatreif, 300,000 Jews saying Shema Yisrael, I get upset, Kenny. You understand? Forgive me. Chabatnik would not get upset. He probably could handle it. I don't know. And, and there's a lot of truth to this. Now, another point that he makes, and this too affects modern life, part of the modern world, money is honey. You, Mishpacha magazine, how many of you subscribe to it? How many of you see it? Morty and I cannot subscribe because our wives will not let it into the house. It doesn't have pictures of women and a guy named Rav Rakefet Paskand Lahalacha that it's against the Torah not to have pictures of women. Brashit is filled with pictures of women and their names. Yes, Sneert but you have to live in a world to know how to live with men and women. And I can prove that I'm one million percent correct statistically. But, all right, we don't allow mishpacha into our homes. I look at mishpacha, did you see the last year before Pesach? Did you see this year before Sukkot? The magazine, the first main section was this thick Billy Guzma. I needed a weightlifter to lift it up. Strung into my floor because my neighbor gets it and I always do a chesed. Lift it up and bring it to his door. Leave it near his door. It shouldn't be pushed around. Couldn't lift it up. Shoot. Morty, right or wrong, have you seen it at the newsstand? Yomo, thank God, Yomo's on my side. It's two kilo or something. For one, one part of it, you open it up all of Yiddishkeit, clothing, suits, dresses, children, boys, bar mitzvah, hats, Barcelona, food, Shem Yirachem, every type, Frieza, Shmisa, Bisa, Lisa. I know one good Jew made the mistake of his life went back to America 40 years ago or more. I loved him. I loved her, his wife, my student. He went back. Why? I remember he showed me the popcorn 
that you can put into the microwave, it's in a little bag, and it pops up two, three, whatever minutes. Wow, he says, you're married. look at this. He went to ask a Rebbe. The Rebbe told him, better to sit where, I don't say anymore, you'll identify him. Better to sit in China and think about Israel than to think in the sit in Israel and think about China. I would have never passed him that way. Today, pop. By the way, that popcorn is all over the place here. You can get parav, milchiks, two hashkachan, three hashkachan. Pop it up in the mica. Avdas gibich the neshama? No translation necessary. Mark, if you take a look what they're advertising, cauliflower drawn, drawn, and this and that, and coated, and Freddie pop, one minute heated up. Oh my gosh, the wines that are—I I picked up an issue of mishpacha from the—I couldn't believe the ads on wines, Austrian wine, Australian wine, Californian wine. We find a shalom. They're lucky they allowed a few ads in from Israel on the Israeli wine, which is as good as any wine. Ach, gentlemen. To live that lifestyle, you need money. Money buys honey. And he makes the point, when people looked around, those that sat and learned, autumnkeit, poverty, impoverished, poor. Look at the young people in Yehuda Vishomran. You want to see from Jews? I claim the only place you can see from Jews today is in Yehuda Vishomer. I challenge anyone to prove me wrong. Their devotion, Torah, Eretz Yisrael, Am Yisrael, their Tzniyot, all right, they're not that wealthy. They don't have every gizmo and every gadget around. But that's a very good point. And I have to say that this volume, it's a beautiful description of the world before the Russian. And this is Reb Chaim. Now you see Reb Chaim, he never, um, um, next week you're going to see a detailed letter, the most famous letter written in modern times about the Russian. But I don't think he ever revealed all the reasons I, I think there's a lot of truth to everything we said today. And those of you familiar with life, when you're young, you think life is black and white. They asked Rabbi Lichtenstein, what did you gain from Harvard? And he essentially answered, before I went to Harvard, I thought everything was black and white. In Harvard, I learned it's very gray. There are many factors in life. This goes into... Look what we're dealing with in the Sunday class with beating the hell out of... By the way, I spoke with my own grandchildren and I spoke with a few of them uh, who are older than I am today. And then they said, look, my father did hit me, but I, I have to forgive him because he meant well. He didn't know any better. But the whole question of the hitting and, and, and the corporal punishment what they speak of yeah these kids one one had anger against father 
doesn't forgive him so wholeheartedly. One says, look, I have five sons. I never lift a finger to them, but my father was from a different generation. All right, I don't know if I agree, different generation, it's a different personality. But you see, when you're dealing with, with Reb Menashe Klein in a question like this, is it black or white or very gray? Remember yesterday we spoke about a kid would say, let my father hit me. I don't want to leave my parents. Or another kid would say, the hell with my parents. I want to be adopted by this beautiful family. Black or white? Where do you draw the line? That's what the pine, that's what the barn answered. It's a very powerful answer. And I have to say, as one who's taught Torah for 64 years now, can I inherit? God should give me strength. I have enough prepared to teach for another 64 years. Um, this is life. It's not black and white. And, and Reb Chaim gave some answers, but there's a lot more in the puddle of life and the pool of life and the river of life. A lot more considerations. And I think this is a good summary. Now, I want to quote Reb Chaim and his school of thought. They said a very simple Devat Torah. But the more you think about it, they hit the nail on the head. What, do we say, what did we say this morning? We'll say it. Hashiva avinu letoratecha v'kareznu malkeinu Right? The, the, the earliest bracha after the first three. Look at the order. First of all, we ask God, Hashiva to learn Torah, to be knowledgeable. When you have knowledge, then the worship of God can be proper. Once you have knowledge which leads to proper avodat Hashem, then it's chazireinu b'tshuva. Then we complete shoes. Chazireinu b'tshuva. Shleimala We're complete shoes. And you see, a chassid wouldn't put it in that order. A chassid would, would put first kareinu malkeinu l'avodotecha Davening, Cheshbonot, Kabbalah, Hitlahavut, and only afterwards we have a little strength left, then we can learn Torah. And once you have the proper Kavana, then the Tshuva will come. But the Kavana comes before the Talmud Torah. Right? It's this debate can go on until today, and I don't have to tell you without reach, we've gone through a lot, a lot of development. Why you was once heavily involved in outreach. Uh, do you remember that, Kenny, in the 60s into the 70s, the why you summer programs and the Torah outreach? Excuse, what was it called? Torah Leadership, Torah Leadership Seminar, TLS, correct. And uh, Normie Amzel, your classmate, used to play the guitar and uh, how do we approach? On the other hand, it's not Talmud Torah. I'm a Litvak, Talmud Torah. But Talmud Torah, you have to be prepared. You have to be ready. But you need emotion too. How do you find your way? 
both Shlomelakalbach, Am Yisrael Chai, Old Avinu Chai. Is that enough? And yet without it, look how many people he was Makarov. And I have my problem, you all know I, I have my problems with him. I know things that are indisputable. And I have my problems. On the other hand, the whole world, wherever you go, Kabbalah Shabbat, you hear his Nigunim. Charedim, Chadalim, Tatiim Lumiim, you hear his Nigunim. The emotion, is it enough? Is it enough? Remember I had a Talmidar in Michalach, and she became through, through Kalbach and would spend Shabbatot in his Yishuf here. What's it, Montesiol? Like, what's it called? You can, what's it? Does anyone know? Moshe Montesiol. Moshe so I'm correct. And Rabbi Koopman found out he was hysterical. He was, you know, afraid the exposure to Kalbach. But I was the usual Rakefet. Uh, despite my own innate feelings, I have to be broad enough to understand their other viewpoints. But how do you approach? How do you start? Tel Aviv, a lot of outreach was going on. It caused the counter-reaction that a woman was screaming on Yom Kippur at Jews davening in public. I mean, it's unbelievable. The tefillin stands, they wanted to pass a law that it's forbidden to put a tefillin stand in public to ask people to put on tefillin. This is Tel Aviv. And, and, and other politicians, Rosh Hudi, they were offering money people who wanted to rent or buy in Tel Aviv to form what Tel Aviv once was, a from city. And, and how do they have money to give? And, oh, it caused a counter-reaction. But how do you begin? How do you influence? All right, you're smarter than I am. I leave it, I always say, at a certain point, I have to say, I've done my share, my generation. We've done our share. You have to take over the next generation, the generation beyond the next generation. And I have a lot of confidence. You'll take it further in tremendous dignity. All right. Now, let's begin with formal information on Reb Chaim Volashen. His years, 1749-1821. I have to be honest, at one time, on a collegiate level, I had to teach the same course every year in BMT. So I knew all the dates by heart. But all right, Baruch Hashem, today I have to look. Uh, 1749-1821. And uh, there's no question that Voloshin Yeshiva changed the entire Litvisha world and continues its great influence until this moment. Rav Chaim, as we said, was the Talmud of the Gon, probably the top Talmud, because he lived longer than the Gon. It's not like his younger brother who died young, who they say was even bigger than Rav Chaim, but he was the top Talmud. We'll hear later next week how he relates to being called the Talmud of the Gon. Nefesh Chaim is the most important work. Uh, he also has a commentary on Pirkei Ovid. It was all published together with Nefesh Chaim. You'll also have the Ruach Chaim on Pirkei Ovid. He, Paskin Shailas, he was the Rav of Volashen. 
but he never published the volume of his own tshuvat. Later, when family members published volumes, they included his tshuvat as well. In Chut HaMeshulash, you have three different members of the family, including Nebuchadnezzar, and their tshuvat halacha lemaisa. Now, what's most fascinating is what we spoke about earlier. The Vilna Gon put the Hasidim into Chayrim. The Vilna Gon fought the Hasidim with a passion. All of you know that the Vilna Gon left Vilna when the Balkanya and Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Etebs, when great Hasidic leaders came to meet him to show him that they're good Jews, don't believe everything you hear. Yes, we're Hasidim, we have a new concept but we're still good Jews. And the Gon left Vilna rather than look at the apikarsim, his eyes. The Rub often spoke about it, that uh, had he, he Rub would quote Hasidic uh, stories that the, that the Gon was afraid that if he saw the Balkanya and the holiness that enveloped him, he would become a Hasid. All right, we'll never know for sure, but the Gon fought them caustically. What's interesting about Reb Chaim, on a daily basis, he never fought the Hasidim. On an intellectual basis, Nefesh Chaim, there's no question that it was written and it totally had a different viewpoint than the Hasidic world and every professor you'll ever listen to whenever he'll lecture on this era, this epoch, he will tell you Nefesh Chaim with Reb Chaim Voloshin's rebuttal of the Hasidic world. On a practical level, if for the sake of argument can he, Hasidic businessman came to Voloshin and Voloshin was a small city but they would be traveling there on to Minsk, going to Vilna, the other way, Minsk, fairs, business. They'd stop off in Volozhin. He never rebuked the Hasidic individual. They came in with Hasidic clothes. They came in with a gatel. They could tell stories of the Rebbeim. On the practical level, he never fought with them. And this is an absolute fact. Occasionally, someone of Hasidic origins, like Rav Avram Yitzchakakoyin Cook, would wander into Volozhin. No one said a negative word about their Hasidic origins. And he even refused when he was young and first Rav of Volozhin and Haramim were still being written. He refused to sign on. Now, how do you interpret this? I think knowing Moria Rebbe, who will see as a direct descendant, I think the attitude was, look, the fight was legitimate. The Hasidim may have gone, and this is the famous Makar Baruch, when he tells the story, when the name of the Tzemach Tzedek, uh, t- talking with the Velazhiners, that had they not fought them, Chassidus might have gone to extremes that voided and abrogated Torah Tashem. But because 
the Golan was so severe and so extreme, it kept the Hasidim basically on a straight path. Yes, problems do exist. The Rebbe always said, I told you this one time, I can still see the outside Russia before my eyes and thousands of people laughing and the Rebbe is laughing and the Rebbe is, you know, when you have a fight with Hasidim, throw into their face two sins they do. Say, they don't daven at the proper time and mean, and we don't eat in a sukkah I remember I repeated this I heard it from the Rav I was a kid but I always was tantalized why don't I eat in a sukkah it's an open Gemara what's it Memzayin in sukkah Bareich Lomer Vachinim Yatev Yatvinim Bareich Lomer Vachinim the Gemara says clearly you sit in the sukkah but you don't make a bracha why? Why? All right, I have a lot of theories, but probably the most basic theory is that the Hasidim, the Tish of the Rebbe, was critical in their religious experience. No sukkah was big enough to hold the throngs that came to the Rebbe. Shmini Atzeret, they were already makehill, better to eat inside and let a thousand people watch the Rebbe and sing and dance and fabrain than to be in a sukkah where you can't do this. And that may be the whole basic reason. It's not right halachically, but if you have a Hasidic soul, you have to accept it. So it could be that that was Reb Chaim. He saw, look, they're not that far off the path. If we yell and shout and maledict them and interdict them we're going to push them away and in my humble opinion I'm quoting the Rav now this whole Machloket ended in the Holocaust Hitler didn't differentiate between our Litvishi Yid and our Hasidish Yid and a Yid was Yahat Galeit Tvilin and Nisht Galeit Tvilin Loa Leinu he killed us all just as we saw here on Simchas Torah I don't have to elaborate so this is my explanation on Reb Chaim. Uh, most scholars look at it this way. I don't think there's another way to look at it. Because on one hand, the Nefesh Chaim is anti-Hasidus. I quote it to you with looking for the stars to Davin Mincha. And on the other hand, he never signed the Chayim or acted negatively against them. And let me make one more point, setting the stage for next week. We live in a blessed generation. You cannot appreciate all that has been written and clarified on Torah Tashem Tamima. I'm not just referring to the gizmo that I was given a gift by a Talmud. Uh, which I tell you I'm, I'm, I'm frightened because I suffer on Shabbos Morty, I don't know. We don't need any sperm. Here it is. Schottenstein in English, the Gemara original. Any source quoted by Rashi, Tosfas, want to see the Rambam, Shulchan Aruch, you just 
tap on the blue line, and there it pops up before your eyes. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. All right, what can I say? I have to be a, I have to struggle to be a Shemesh Shabbos today. <laughs> okay, so one of the greatest, let me, let me, right here in Beit Shemesh, there's a Jew named Avinoam Frankel. Does anyone know him? Do you know him? Please send him my regards. I know him personally. I know about him. Right, let, let, let people who know him send my regards. So he did a two-volume English translation and commentary on the Nefesh HaKayim. It's called Nefesh HaTzimtzum, Nefesh HaKayim, with translation and commentary, published by Urim in Yerushalayim. And I don't know how I was privileged, he sent me a copy of the work. And I'm quoting from page 47, where he summarizes the introduction, translator's introduction, he summarizes a lot, a lot of what I said today, what was before Rebchim, provincial pockets of Torah study around the local rabbis, but this was haphazard and without any formal organization across any particular region. These students were not generally held in high esteem by the people. And it's what we've been speaking about. Now, on page 47, he touches upon, uh, I, I've often dealt with this. When was Yeshiva Tvalazhin organized? Reb Chaim, and we're going to, next week's year, we're going to deal with Reb Chaim's letter. It's a very important letter. I'll introduce you to another very important volume. Uh, his letter was written around Rosh Hashanah, in, or before Rosh Hashanah, 1802. So when did the yeshiva begin? I always taught my students, Kenny, 1802. You'll find in some encyclopedias, they'll say 1803. I'll tell you what's involved here. 1803 is when they laid the cornerstone for the building. We'll talk about that next week. They built the building. That was unheard of. Building exists until today. When did the yeshiva begin? And he deals with it. The truth of the matter is, if you say 1801 or 1802 or 1803, you're not wrong. You see, when Reb Chaim was Rav and what did we talk about an hour ago? Students gathered around him, even before the formal yeshiva. So there already was 10, 15 in 1801, 1802, he publicized the idea of founding a formal yeshiva. 1803, they laid the groundstone. Do you now are building a building? So if you talk about Velozhin, Abe, you're probably best off saying 1802. But if anyone wants to say 1801 or 1803, they're also right. And with this little handful, 
1520. Ultimately, he had over 50 students, maybe at some point even on to 100. When he died and Reb Yitzchak took over the yeshiva, in his time already there were 250 students. By the time of the Nitziv, you had about 400 students. So you see the Lushen, how it began. And you make an analogy in modern times. Take a look how blessed we are today. Take Mir. How did Mir begin? A handful of survivors from Shanghai. In 46, 47, it split up. Some went to America, some went to Canada, some went to Palestine. Take a look what Mir grew into. Take Lakewood. How did Lakewood begin? White Plains, before Rebarans, Rebendel Zaks, a Koilil. White Plains. You have refugees coming in now. You have a student body, at least people you can ask to become students. And uh, then it didn't work in White Plains. And after the Hatzalah reached the point that you couldn't do more, they were killing Jews wholesale, and there was no way to stop it. So Rabarin, they pleaded with him, take over White Plains. And he winds up, as I explained to you, chooses Lakewood. It's further away from any big city. It's not like White Plains that borders on the metropolis of New York. And Lakewood begins. My time in Lakewood, early 50s, mid-50s, 102 students. <coughs> and take a look what became out of Lakewood. So you see, you begin with a small nucleus, but if you have a good product to sell, it attracts. And nowadays, what we spoke about yesterday, I don't know whether you can call Lakewood and Mir a yeshiva. I would rather call it an umbrella under which there are many different chaburat that relate to the name Mir or to the name Lakewood. And this is how it began. Okay, to reiterate, what do we do today? First of all, I hope I've made very clear that period in the Rub's life and relationship with the Blaze of Silver. And yes, you could be an Agudist and a Mizrachist at the same time, late 30s, early 40s. But then the Rub saw the thinking as the survivors when the Yudapisha and the Rub is given an American already. He was an American their mentality was alien to him. And he could be very sharp when he spoke in public. He didn't have to dot his eyes or cross his tears. And I admire the fact that they didn't edit it out. They published it. I, as I read the English, I can hear the Rav in Yiddish. I, it's overwhelming to me. And I have to thank Rabbi... Dr. Fishman, Professor Fishman, he's Professor of Yiddish at JTS in Columbia, I believe. And uh, I have to thank 
Professor Fishman and Rabbi Zeidler Feller, they did a beautiful service and gift to the Torah community that we have the Rav on Zionism and, and Yehuda Dov, only the Rav. You got to see the way he develops the talk he gave. I think it was 49 from the Zohar and he's giving hell to the Mizrahi. Your job is not to have conferences for Shabbos and not to talk about this or that. It's a waste of time. Your job is to build Yeshivat Katana day schools. That if you follow the Rav, that's where it begins. Conference on Shabbos, who are you going to impress? You've got to hear the Rav's words, but you've got to understand it in the context of the 40s. Terrific, terrific. My dear students, one more word. Um, these volumes just came out. Two volumes. This is a graduate of the Kolel. It's someone who studied with me many, many years. BMT, Kolel, post-Kolel, Rabbi Aaron Goldscheider, the editor of Torah Tidbits. He put together... You, you have no idea how well he writes. He's put out other svarim. I went through this svarim, the rough part, word by word by word. Everything in here. At times I made addendums, corrections, suggestions. I don't know anyone who caught the rough's Torah and any, every pasha, the gist of it, as beautiful as Rabbi Goldscheider. But it's more than that. Teachings on the weekly Pasha from Avram Yitzchak Akoin Cook, Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, and the Hasidic Masters. And this came out. It's, uh, I, I can highly, highly recommend it. It's by the OU Press in conjunction with Ketav. And I have to tell you, I am very, very proud of Aaron. He's not had an easy life. I don't have to elaborate. Lower Lenu and he rebounded, came in Aliyah, and on his own. No one helped him. I try, you know, he's going to. Today, Torah Tidbits is Aaron Goldscheider. Gives lectures all over. Fabulous teacher. He and Karen, let me mention his wife, and Aisha Kyle, fabulous role models. For Am Yisrael, they should have good health and nachat from the children. And this, these two volumes have to be a best safer, a bestseller. Torah United, a bestseller. First volume, Breshit Shmot. The second volume, the other three volumes of the Torah, the Covered Ulitiferet. One more thing, uh, I have to tell you in relation to this class, going back uh, 20, 30 years. So you remember I dealt with the question of the Belzerabeim, there's tremendous criticism that they ran out of, his, out of Europe in 1944, smuggled out, and they left their Hasidim behind. So I gave my explanation. I'm happy to see that I'm in good company. In, in one of the Alonim this past weekend, or, uh, this was in Besheva, the Free Bee newspaper we get on Friday, so they ask Rav Dov Liar, who himself is a Holocaust survivor, the great Gon Rav Dov Liar, uh, Rosh Hashiva of Hebron, etc., etc. How can it be that Rabbanim Gedaylem, I don't know, the whole Shailu Admurim, and they left 
they got out to go there at Yisrael and left everyone else behind. And he gives a fabulous answer. The Rabbanim were not smuggled to Israel because they wanted to. Their followers and Kachal Hasidim insisted, we got to get you out because if we can serve, save Gedolei Yisrael, you'll have tremendous hashpa afterwards. But if we don't save you, we won't be able to save anyone. And this is why they smuggled them out. And the whole question is really not relevant. I explained it in great detail years ago. But I'm happy that both Harav Dovliar and your humble servant are on the same wavelength. Finally, in, in Torah Tidbits, page 34 this past week, there was a beautiful story. One of the Shamashim of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Reb Chesed Halbishtam, every day he was required to drive in the Rebbe's and Chayamashka to a park along Long Island. Yeah. There she would enjoy some fresh air, feed the birds, and enjoy some desperately needed private downtime. All right, you can understand. In this park, no one knew who she was. One time they're driving Long Island Expressway, and it's blocked. They have to detour. There's construction. And they detour on side streets. I think it's in Queens. And uh, they stop at the traffic light, and they see a commotion that a whole group of people are... are gathered around and movers are slipping furniture and loading up a truck and he drives on and a block later the Revitson asks him turn around let's go back and see what was happening they go back and Rabbi Chesed gets out of beautiful name Chesed Rabbi Chesed asks what's happening and there was a county marshal it's a Russian family that had gotten out of Russia in hard times and they don't have money for the rent and they're being evict evicted for their home because they were in arrears for, for the rent. The rabbits inquired how much the woman owed and if the marshal would accept the personal check. The sum was $6,700. The marshal called the bank, confirmed that there was ample money to cover the check. The Rebbitson wrote out a check for the full amount, gave it to the bailiff, and asked him if the same man who took the furniture out of the house could please bring it back in. She then quickly took leave of the scene before the family would recognize who their benefactress was. And as they made their way to the park, Rabbi Chesed couldn't contain himself and asked her, Rebbitson, why did you go out of your way to give such a sum to total strangers? And she answered, quote, when I was a little girl, my father, the Freer de Kadeba, the sixth Rebbe, told me that any time something causes us to deviate from our normal routine, 
there is a divinely ordered reason. When I saw the detour sign instructing us to deviate from our regular route, I remembered my father's words and immediately thought to myself, every day we drive by the street, suddenly the street is closed and we're sent to a different street. I realized we had been sent along the route for a purpose. And what can I tell you? A story like that needs no commentary. Chabad sends groups to America to visit the center, the Rebbe's grave. Kfar Chabad, very active. So I, I know people were on a plane where there was a whole group of high school seniors coming to America to visit. And she said she never saw a group of 30 girls where everyone had the same name, Chaya Mashka. These girls were born right after the Rebbitson died. <coughs> Excuse me. So I want to give a bracha to anyone named Chaya Mashka. Halavai, you should grow up to be like the original Chaya Mashka Schneerson. Okay, are there any questions? I want to thank, I have a nice crowd in front of me. Where, where is uh, the other guys from the Kola? What's going on this week? I'm being boycotted, there's an exam. Uh, 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 Yassi, where is Yassi? Where is Max? Where is Chet? Who's not feeling well today? Who's not feeling well? How can young people not feel well? Look at the Rebbe. I just dictated a letter to some Chabatic in America you don't realize my age. He wants to interview me at night. Night is really time. Manishalaylam. Seven o'clock in the morning, interview me, but not seven o'clock at night. Gentlemen, and I want to I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You give me life. Until we meet again in health and happiness. Tasvidanya.